How are we to understand the relationship of love between a universal God and one particular people, and the striking connection between the creator of heaven and earth and one small slice of land, one sacred city in the Middle East? Welcome to Bible 365, episode 25, Readers of the Lost Ark. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Ludwig Friedman had a challenge. A survivor of the Holocaust in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp, he had met and become engaged to another survivor by the name of Lily, whose dream, she had told him, was to be married in a white wedding dress. But how could such an object be procured? The writer Helen Schwimmer tells us that, quote, fate would intervene in the guise of a former German pilot who walked into the food distribution center where Ludwig worked, eager to make a trade for his worthless parachute. In exchange for two pounds of coffee beans and a couple of packs of cigarettes, Lily would have her wedding gown, end quote. The wedding of Ludwig and Lily parallels those of other survivors, astonishing affirmations of life and continuity after experiences of nothing but destruction and death. But this Jewish wedding in the 1940s, in what was formerly the Third Reich, would also in its own way exquisitely embody the value system of a tiny tabernacle created in the desert by the ancestor of this bride and groom millennia before. Following the delineation of the laws known as Mishpatim and Israel's ascent to the covenant, we are informed of Moses being told by God of the tabernacle that is to be created through the voluntary gifts of the Israelites. Though the chronology is a bit unclear, we can read this as being communicated to Moses almost immediately after Sinai, before the sin of the golden calf, with the plan being that after Moses descends from the mountain with the two tablets, then a covenantal communion is to be established through the tabernacle which is nothing less than a portable temple, a dwelling place of the divine that can be erected and dismantled throughout Israel's sojourns. Let us understand its basic blueprint, which will eventually be imitated when a permanent temple is created in Jerusalem. A series of beams, sockets, hooks, and hangings will create a large courtyard in the desert, in the center of Israel's encampment. In the courtyard is to be found a wooden object coated in brass, atop which much of Israel's cultic rites will occur, with its dimensions delineated at the beginning of Exodus 27. And thou shalt make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. You may be wondering, ladies and gentlemen, how long a cubit exactly is. And I regret to tell you that contemporary rabbis have real disagreements as to the answer. And after all, my friends, could it be otherwise? Suffice it to say that a cubit is around a foot and a half, making this portable altar around five feet high, much smaller than the future one in the temple. Another series of hangings and furs inside the courtyard create a cordoned-off area, and this one will be an enclosed room, what is known as the Kodesh, the holy portion, entered only by the Kohanim, the priests. Later in the temple, it will be called the Hechal. Three objects dominate this area. One is the Shulchan table, described in chapter 25, verse 23, which bears 12 loaves, lechem hapanim, showbread, a symbol of our reliance on the Almighty for our material well-being. The next object in this area, in the holy, 
is the golden candelabra, the menorah, here one of many vessels, but which will ultimately become a veritable symbol of Judaism itself. The third object was a smaller altar, used primarily not for animal sacrifices, but instead for incense. The menorah and the incense altar are, Exodus will make clear, profoundly and mysteriously linked, and we will ponder why this is so, two lectures from today. But for now, let us focus on the part of the sacred room furthest from the entrance, cut off from the rest of it by another curtain, known as the parochet. This room is the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies. The fact that this is the holiest section tells us that there the Almighty's presence is most profound. And inside the Holy of Holies sits only one object, the locus of the divine indwelling. Exodus 25.10 And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. This ark, in Hebrew Aaron, is created to contain the two tablets, which are a symbol of the forged bond between Israel and the Almighty. Containing the law, this object is to be known, therefore, as the Aaron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant. A cover called Kaporet sits atop it, on which were two angelic figures facing each other. Over them, God is enthroned. From there he speaks to Moses. Exodus 25, 18. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, of beaten metal shalt thou make them, at the two ends of the ark cover. And there I will meet with thee, and I will speak with thee from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubim. What are these two cherubim? Why do they serve as the site of God's presence? For the Talmud, these angelic figures were made in the image of a male and female figure respectively, and their wings, extended in embrace to one another, are thereby an embodiment of the romantic relationship between Israel and the divine. The rabbis report that when Israel would pay pilgrimage to Jerusalem on the holidays, the curtain to the Holy of Holies would be thrown open and the priests would announce, as they saw the cherubim, see how your love before the Almighty is akin to the love of a man for a woman. The Holy of Holies, in other words, is where God dwells because it is there that his love for his people Israel is revealed. Now, of course, this is a great mystery, impossible to understand. How can an infinite God dwell atop an ark? The enigma was expressed by the greatest poet in Jewish history since King David, the Sephardic rabbi Judah Halevi, in a poem where he said, and this translation is from Hillel Halkin, An ark was your home, but so is heaven's dome. The spheres cannot hold you, but a room can. Halevi's words highlight the intellectual obsession of his life the heart of his great work, the Kuzari. How are we to understand the relationship of love between a universal God and one particular people, and the striking connection between the creator of heaven and earth and one small slice of land, one sacred city in the Middle East? In his biography of Halevi, Halkin describes his own journey to Cordoba in Andalusia. As you arrive there, you see that the city that was once Halevi's home, as well as those of some of the greatest Jewish intellects and exegetes, where Maimonides was born, now has only one tiny synagogue off an alley, Calle Los Judios, from the era when Jews still lived there, a synagogue now restored, beautiful but small. And the truth is that one small medieval synagogue is a lot more than most medieval Spanish cities have. Meanwhile in Cordoba, 
the Mesquita, the massive mosque turned into a cathedral, testifying by its architecture to Islam and by its artistic adornments to Christianity, towers over Cordoba, bespeaking the great world powers that once ruled there. Halkin describes his reflecting that Spain, once the site of one of the most important Jewish communities in history, now has no remnant that matches the Mesquita in its grandeur. He writes, quote, All over Andalusia are churches that once were mosques, the eerie lightness of whose minarets now support the weight of Christian bells. And Judaism? A room in Cordoba, a doorway in Seville, end quote. Suddenly, Halkin writes, he remembered Halevi's words, the spheres cannot hold you, but a room can. And he concludes that the whole of Halevi's life was, quote, a grappling with the question of why the infinite creator of all things would choose to limit his revelation of himself to a particular people such as the Jews, in a particular place such as the land of Israel, in a particular form such as Judaism. Indeed, he continues, the omnipotent and omniscient Lord of the universe not only entered all that was small, he preferred it. The synagogue, Ancaye de los Judios, was just his size. End quote. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what the Ark of the Covenant represents. God is discovered often not in the massive but in the tiny, and ultimately in one tiny people's eternal tale. And if the Jews, as a tiny people, continued to endure, it was precisely because they believed that if God dwelled among them out of love in the tabernacle, then he could continue to do so in the future. After all, the fact that unlike the temple, the tabernacle traveled, could not the Almighty also accompany Israel through its many exiles into the wildernesses of the world? Ashkenazic Jews ultimately took the Hebrew word for the ark, Aaron, and bestowed it upon the cabinet in the synagogue in which the Torah scroll is placed. Sephardic Jews, in turn, took another rabbinic word for the sacred sphere of the temple, Hechal. All this is to express the devout belief that the God who dwelled among Israel in the desert did so out of love, and therefore he dwells among us still. Exodus in 25.15 informs us that the poles used to carry the ark in the wilderness must remain attached to the ark forever. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Interpreted symbolically by the commentators, this emphasizes our ability to take the essence of the ark everywhere throughout our exile and to sustain ourselves with all that the cherubim embody. Israel, Michael Wishgrau once wrote, knows that it is loved, and it is this awareness that has enabled it to survive thousands of years of persecution without internalizing the anti-Semite's image of the Jew. For rabbinic tradition, the Ten Commandments and the larger set of biblical commandments that they embody are not only a series of covenantal obligations, they are the ketubah, the marital contract between Israel and God. That is why it is placed beneath the embracing cherubim. And that is why the tabernacle may well be the inspiration for the most famous feature of a Jewish wedding, the chuppah, the tent-like structure beneath which bride and groom are joined as husband and wife. While some have seen it as a reminder of the tent of Abraham and Sarah, others see a symbol of God's tent in the desert, the very tabernacle we are describing. Israel's wedding its marriage to God occurred at Sinai, and its chuppah with God was the tabernacle in which the divine presence dwelled. The chuppah, then, is there as a symbol of God and Israel's covenantal love, and what it means is that standing under the chuppah 
the Jewish bride and groom facing each other become themselves the cherubim atop the ark, exquisite embodiments of the romance between Israel and the Almighty. Every Jewish wedding is an ark of the covenant. Every Jewish wedding is the ark restored. We are now able to understand why Jews would be so driven to mark a wedding after experiencing the Holocaust, and why, when Lily Friedman created a wedding dress out of a parachute, so many of her fellow survivors were so excited to celebrate with her. And yet, we are further informed by Helen Schwimmer that those Jews did not want to mark the occasion in Belsen itself. They sought a synagogue, a site of Jewish prayer, where centuries of hopes and dreams were tearfully expressed, a site that had a holy ark of the Torah, a site where Lily could be married. Of course, these Jews knew that any synagogue in the area would have been ravaged and destroyed by the Nazis, but they were undeterred. And as one reads of the travels taken for this wedding, one can only think of the original Israelites faithfully marching with the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the desert. Helen Schwimmer writes as follows, quote, 400 people marched 15 miles in the snow to the town of Sel on January 27, 1946, to attend Lily and Ludwig's wedding. The town synagogue, damaged and desecrated, had been lovingly renovated by the DPs with the meager materials available to them. When a Torah scroll arrived from England, they converted an old kitchen cabinet into a makeshift ark. End quote. Schwimmer quotes Friedman as saying, My sisters and I lost everything. Our parents, our two brothers, our homes. The most important thing was to build a new home. And she further writes that, quote, Six months later, Lily's sister Ilona wore the dress when she married Max Traeger. After that came cousin Rosie. How many brides wore Lily's dress? I stopped counting after 17. With the camps experiencing the highest marriage rate in the world, Lily's gown was in great demand. End quote. So long as Jewish weddings are celebrated, Judaism lives. So long as God's love for Israel is seen in husband and wife, the ark endures as well. This is, ladies and gentlemen, not even close to the last time that we will discuss the sublime symbolism of the ark of the covenant. We will see it brought to battle and captured in the book of Samuel, installed in the sanctum sanctorum by Solomon in Jerusalem. And then, as the period of the first temple comes to a close, it will suddenly not be seen by human eyes again. What occurred to the ark is a question, a mystery, that will be discussed later in the year. But for now we can say that the ark, though lost, was also found. For if weddings were cherished by Jews above all, it is because they believed that their formation of families, their joining of husband and wife, was done in imitation of the cherubim, of the eternal love between Israel and the Almighty. Decades after her wedding, Lily Friedman journeyed with her children and grandchildren back to Belsen. But they wished to focus not only on death, but also on life, to see the site of her wedding. Helen Schwimmer describes the experience, quote, Lily's family, who were all familiar with the stories about the wedding in Sel, were eager to visit the synagogue. They found the building had been completely renovated and modernized. But when they pulled aside the handsome curtain, they were astounded to find that the holy ark, made from a kitchen cabinet, had remained untouched as a testament to the profound faith of the survivors. As Lily stood on the bima once again, she beckoned to her granddaughter Jackie to stand beside her, where she was once a bride. It was an emotional trip. We cried a lot. Two weeks later, the woman who had once stood trembling before the selective eyes of the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele returned home and witnessed the marriage of her granddaughter. End quote. So concludes her story. But Lily's story is the Jewish story. 
To many, the cultic aspects of the Bible, the laws of the temple and tabernacle, are seen as outmoded and irrelevant. One of my goals in Bible 365 is to attempt to make the case otherwise and to illustrate how the tabernacle can speak to us today. Lily Friedman's wedding dress was given to the United States Museum of the Holocaust, and it is preserved in a glass case so that, as Schwimmer tells us, will allow it to last for 500 years. But this marital memento testifies to something sublime that has lasted longer than that, to a marriage whose source is in Sinai and which sustains the Jewish people still. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.